Welcome to Sintalk. The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the survival to posterity. We'll think about permanence, chance, memories and tradition. What survives in the long run and why? What is remembered and what is forgotten? Are there possible formulae and techniques to survive across several centuries? How can change or evolution be allowed to take place in life and art? Can ownership of the past be strictly private? Is archaeology a scientific discipline? How is the material different from the immaterial? Why do we sometimes dig past? Why do urban dwellers celebrate harvest festivals? Might the past sometimes be preferred over the present? And what will happen to the vast amounts of past in the long run? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Dr. M.D. Muttukumaraswamy, he is a Tamil writer and directs the National Folklore Support Center in Chennai. Sudarshan Shetty, he is an artist and lives in Mumbai. And Professor Kavita Singh, she teaches art history at JNU. So Kavita, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, you thought about museums for a bit. Um, when did the conception of museums come to be? I mean, what is it? I mean, why why does that concept even exist? And what makes it to a museum? Why why does such a notion exist amongst us in the human life world? So there are a number of different trajectories that people trace for the origin of museums. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I think to distinguish is uh, whether we are talking about the origin of collections of significant objects right. or the origin of museums. Right. Collections have been made by many people over a very long period of time. You mean private collections of different kinds. And, and by the royalty, word, by, yeah, by royal families. Exactly. By, so, and I so mean, the word so private also becomes a little bit complicated sure. in a pre-modern context. Mm. But if you uh, think about the kind of accumulations that we have in temples and in churches, right. it's not, it is a private ownership and yet it is not quite as private as a king's possessions. On the other hand, even a king's possessions are things that are meant to be handed down to succeeding generations. Sure. So it wouldn't be quite normal or it would be a shameful matter if either a temple or a church or a ruler had to actually empty their treasuries and convert what is over there into ordinary material which is sold in order to pay for their food bills. So there is some sense even in these pre-modern, what we think of as private collections. There's something special about what is inside. Not just uh, special about what is inside. Of course, we expect these things to be special objects which are treasures. But there is actually an expectation of these collections being permanent, Mm. even in those contexts. Mm. And their permanence is meant to be a mark of the stability of the king's rule, his ability, 
टू नॉट हैव टू लीड हिज रूलरशिप और हिज किंगडम इन टू अ स्टेट ऑफ इकोनॉमिक क्राइसिस एंड सर्टनली इफ अ गॉड इज नॉट एबल टू इंश्योर the stability of the treasures and the votive gifts that have been given to him that god also is not good for business either so even prior to the public museum okay. you have collections which are accumulations of important and valuable things which people have occasion to occasionally you know look at and to admire uh which are meant to be held in perpetuity and these are a result of conquests and travels and the uh, visitors many kinds and, of uh, accumulation it could right. be gifts it could be votive offerings it could be thanksgiving right. it could be just accumulation that comes from having wealth and there's actually an interesting scholar who's worked exactly on Mm-hmm. this question of why it is that certain collections that we think of as private property in the pre-modern era also uh, are not considered things that can be easily disposed of why there is an aura of sanctity about holding them in the long run and he says all of these are things Who's in this? which Who's this way referring um, to Christoph Pomian Christoph sure. Pomian uh, mm-hmm. in a book called Collectors and Curiosities mm-hmm. and uh, he talks about how these are all valuable objects that circulate in the economy and then when they enter the church or they enter the royal treasury they leave economic circuits right. so what sense does it make to actually bury your gold as it were in these things and he says that they actually so even the nature of value in the nature of value like what changes. value you know wh- why would you take valuable things and take them out of circulation where they become useless goes outside the category of monetary value and so correct sure. correct but he explains that these things when they are vested in these collections whether it's church or state treasuries they actually have entered a kind of circuit of exchange mm-hmm. as well but the circuit of exchange is actually about a transaction between the visible world and the invisible world where when i give a gold offering to tirupati balaji i'm actually expecting tirupati balaji to give me some kind of protection in the here and now <laughs> and equally with the king you expect some sort of benevolence some sort of protection from invading armies some some kind of stability that you expect so his um idea is that these vast centers of accumulation actually come into being not as spaces where transactions end but as a place of a transaction which is meant to be a permanent transaction you know so that's one reason to think about why things accumulated and there was some sanctity about and would not you would you bring in notions of posterity them. and death and afterlife and things of that sort or there is something only immediate to do these things now well we are obviously these are hypotheses and guesses one gets that but you know what i mean is it uh, are these necessarily long term like or or what is it so there is an expectation of stability and in the case of let's say royal collection there is a dynastic stability there's a strong idea of an heirloom the legitimacy of the successor coming very much from his having inherited certain marks of what that dynasty possessed mm-hmm. so posterity in that sense yes but when we walk into the area that we understand now of the modern world in which you have other regimes of protecting things where the idea of protecting things holding them in the name of an anonymous and unknown and unknowable 
public, a public that is not just uh, the worshippers of this church or the subjects of this uh, of this king, but some you know dispersed idea of a public which can include not just the uh, city's public or the country's public, but the world public and for right. generations to come. We're actually entering a very different arena. And it's an arena in which values which are something like sacral values are being applied in an entirely desacralized secular sphere. Yeah which is the coming of the modern nation state yeah. in which a lot of the devotion that we owed either to the king who we saw as a quasi divine yeah. entity or as the so god do they, who do these coincide kavita the notion of a nation state and the notion of the modern museum let's yes, say yes absolutely they do they do absolutely right. so they right. are actually coincident hmm. and they arise from each other actually for most of us who look at the history of museums we feel that the transformation of a private collection into a museum in the sense that we understand it now actually happens during the French Revolution mm -hmm. when you have the takeover of the Louvre which is a palace mm. filled with uh, all these glittering all objects kinds of curiosities and, yeah so it's actually taken over by the revolutionary government and when it's time for the first anniversary of the revolution and some important symbolic gesture has to be made because you have not been able to distribute all the treasures that are lying in the treasuries among all the peasants and uh, you know sort of improve everybody's material conditions of life what you do on the first anniversary of the revolution is you make a symbolic redistribution of the goods by throwing the doors open by simply throwing the doors open you right. haven't actually taken a single piece of gold out of the palace yeah but it's but, but it's you have available allowed and people accessible into to the palace yeah. and there there's a very profound difference where yeah. a symbolic gesture like this which allows people to have some sort of access uh, some access yeah to yeah. these not, objects not, not possession but access yes well it then it, yeah, it's, it's, symbolically it's, it's, transfers ownership to the people where the government owns these things in the name of the people. It's in custody. Yeah. And that is also a profound paradigm shift. Interesting. You know, I think Muthu, uh, Kavita has brought up this whole notion of the sacral in a way. Um, as you think of your world, the more, somewhat more intangible one, of course, there's several tangible things there. Does the notion of the sacred, the notion of sacral play a role in the way uh, myths, folklore, um, stories, transfer from one very generation much, to another. Very much, very much. In relation to the, our theme, what survives to the posterity, hmm. what is sacred as really plays a role in preserving something for the community, for the posterity too. Especially when it comes to the sacred chants all over the world, what happens is it is in terms of creation and also in terms of transmission, mm -hmm. if it is sacred, then people want to preserve the integrity of the sound, integrity of the word, integrity of how the sentence is pronounced, and the same way they also want the next generation to pronounce and carry on. Uh, but the idea of a sacred is a very important for something it to... It is sacred in the sense of not to be fiddled with, or it's sacred in the sense of being tied to... Let's call it organized religion in some shape or form. Now, obviously, in the in the context of sacred chants, one knows the answer. But I think one is just trying to think of the notion of the sacred slightly more broadly. No, the very nature of the orality depends on the memory. 
yeah and to remember something it is important to com- compose something in a way that you will remember and also transmit mm. to the rest of the community and also the next generation mm. so as a composition techniques which the folklorists would call a oral formulae mm-hmm. the oral formulae dictates the way you compose for instance if the vedic chanting has survived in 2000 3000 years it is because of the way they have been u- using oral formulae so it's composed to be remembered composed to be remembered and uh, um, also in the in not necessarily in terms of a uh, in terms of the vedic chanting which is a sacred to to religion but also sacred to communities for instance many of the histories are composed as oral epics right and the oral epics are not necessarily about uh, the sacrality of those sacredness of the oral epics come into being because they are they are important to the community they contain historical memory mm. and who our ancestors are how they came into being why they live in this world the way they live so they explain the customs and practices of the community including marriage their landscape why this landscape is important to us and what's the nature of these techniques mutu i mean what i mean, I mean the oral, oral composition is uh, essentially it it follows a certain rhymes and meters mm-hmm. and also certain times it also uses milman and parry or the ones who wrote this famous book singer of the tales which has become a very important book in the uh, understanding how the oral composition takes place across the world so is there is there something universal about all of them universal about it about the ancient societies and oral societies mm-hmm. how they really compose uh, the oral composition techniques so what what are some central features of course we know that there are some techniques but what i mean surely it's vast and elaborate and there's a lot to meter be said. is one mm-hmm. rhyme is another Mm-hmm. They, for instance, even in a labor songs, you have something like refrains. Right. I refrains like "Ay lelo, ay lasa," to give a simple example. So, r- rhymes, rhythms, and refrains. These are the three things that uh, condition and create uh, the creation of oral compositions. The oral compositions are also conditioned by the language's ability to to rhyme, rhyme, and then. so that it is not necessarily that one has to have a meaning right 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 but right. the sound quality of it the sound quality of it in many of the sacred texts if you really look for meanings they are very simple hymns yeah <laughs> very simple hymns in praise of a sun rising in praise of a, a night in praise of a it uh, in praise of a day or the everyday life life there is a, if you are looking for some profound philosophical meaning which are not there but it is simply prices but then the prices are so effective you price this uh, price the earth you price the sun then it becomes over a period of time they acquire the quality of mantra right and then they say if you chant this then you will acquire certain powers over the forces of the nature which is also common to many cultures across the world Right. it is not simply to one culture but many many oral cultures across the world the ancient composition techniques were essentially orality the orality in terms of the composition techniques but also in the transmission right how is uh, uh i'll i'll just pause you there mutu and we'll get back to this how is your world different sudarshan the 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 visual world the world of do you, do you think about permanence 
do artists think about permanence there's no one club of artists mm-hmm. and not everybody right. is the same and totally gets that but uh you know when, when you think of things over centuries and uh on on time horizons of that sort what do these notions yeah, mean, I mean to you uh, one thing is uh, that uh, problem is uh, it's not a problem i mean there's like a clear dichotomy i see between you know so to say to perform within a certain kind of set institution you know uh, whatever you may call it uh, the art world uh, and then there are a lot of other things that come into play when you kind of you know engage with that world but there might be a case for a place where you come from uh, that has uh, entirely different sets of understanding in terms of understanding what uh, for example permanence may mean you know for an object so in that sense uh, i think that you know like objects in that sense cannot be looked at as postulations you know in a larger story <laughs> it has, uh, right. yeah it's uh, it has to be seen in like in 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 a way that it it is a part of a so I mean, uh, process I, 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 that you know like the time throws up throws up in a for example in an artist's life in that sense uh so for you there would be no such thing as an object it would always yeah it it will be it will be a kind of pointer towards a certain kind of moment in that sense uh, i don't know how to say it better uh, that it would uh, mean that uh, that it was i mean i mean when you look at an object that even within the time for example that it like lives in a museum space for example it it acquires its own history and you know like through and it kind of changes through the perceptions of you know the people that may look at it yeah it's not frozen back in time yes. would you mm-hmm. agree kavita absolutely and it's in the process of making its own history you know through the time of its presence in a for example in a museum space in that sense right is there a difference between the material and the immaterial for you yeah how would you differentiate that it's like a it's like the challenge that you kind of uh, deal with as an artist every day in your studio uh, in some ways mm. what what is left out of museums i mean over over a long period of time i mean are, are things disposed of are things um you know i mean we'll be swimming in history you know in the long run <laughs> well um so this is the dark underbelly of the museum world because we expect from museums is that there would be places that are stable that offer refuge to objects mm. which are of significance mm. something that has entered the museum has come in there because it is something of value whether right. it's monetary Some value artistic value yeah. historic value and we invest so much prestige in the museum because we think of it as a place where these objects are going to rest and they are going to be kind of eternal they have an eternal life right there but the fact is of course that nothing is permanent mm. and the museum is not a stable space at all mm. and there are things that we see in the galleries of the museums where you see objects falling in and out of fashion where some things are removed to the store some things are brought out uh, perhaps because perceptions have changed political circumstances have changed some things are no longer supposed to be highlighted that happens all the time but the degree to which things are also lost and destroyed in museums 
or are taken out of museums through various processes is also one of the dark uh, secrets of the museum world that the public doesn't usually get to know about. But it's happening all the time. I mean, for one thing, things rot in museums. <laughs> yeah. And some yeah. things rot or get damaged just because the museum makes conditions for things to be seen. So something that has been lying buried in a tomb for 2,000 years. Yeah, you just bring it out. 15 it years under the spotlight, it's faded. There's nothing left to see, you know. That's one thing. Hmm. Another thing would be, of course, bad storage in which objects get damaged. Another thing is the fact that the museum is such a concentration of stores of value that those who want to make dramatic gestures against a regime that has produced the value, find the museum the best place oh. to make these iconoclastic or destructive gestures, you know. So it's like really somebody has produced a fantastic sitting target for uh, someone to come and destroy a whole concentration of really valuable things in one fell swoop. But then there are times when museums keep getting so much material that they're expected to take care of that they actually physically cannot take care of them anymore. And they either give them away or they literally just throw them out or destroy them and turn them into rubble. Where you have a process called deaccessioning, mm -hmm. where things that have entered the museum and so get an accession. It, it num out. Yeah, yeah, they get an accession number, so they're accessioned objects in the museum. So there is a committee for deaccessioning which will decide, okay, these things really don't belong you can let go, you release in our them. museum. You release them. Right. And in many cases that actually means literally a bonfire of objects. Wow. Hmm. <laughs> That's sad. <laughs> Somebody doesn't find it so. Somebody <laughs> hasn't found it sad, which is why they took the decision to do that. <laughs> uh -huh. But really then our idea that this is a place of stable meanings of preservation of objects in the long run, that does have to be actually reconfigured in the light of what actually goes on in museums. If you think of ephemeral art, does it, does it, mm. does it, uh, because it kind of comes to be temporarily, right? Um, is that... Uh, I, I believe that all art is ephemeral. All art is temporary. It's not going to, you know, last. And I think the only way it some, can survive... Some are slightly more temporary than others. Yeah, no? the only way it can survive is, uh, you know, your intention at kind of, you know, uh, of making something. If it, that were to be a straight line, it must also include other possibilities for its change once while it's make, while it's in the making and through forward into its you know like having its own life somewhere i mm. think uh, that's the only way it can survive uh, if that intention includes the possibility of its uh, change mm. so obviously a very small fraction of paintings from 500 years ago and 1000 years ago or whatever paintings sculptures columns temples all those kind of things survive I mean, do you do you feel like there are things lost if things are lost, or or you know what I mean? So when you take the position mm. that everything is temporary or whatever, all mm. art is temporary or ephemeral, mm. what kind of gets it at some level? Um, but there is such a thing as a heritage, art heritage. Um, do you? Well, of course, people like Kavita do what they do, and they mm. things make their way to museums and so on. So which is obviously not trying to take positions on one end of the pole mm. or the other. Mm. Um, but is it is it all idealistic? Sure. How I mean, much yeah, of it is, is how much of it is material? Yeah, I think it's, it's not only physical. The heritage is like you know comes in various forms, you know, and when you look at 
uh, or, or kind of uh, say heritage what does it mean you know does it come from your parents or your grandparents or you know from uh, the pyramids in egypt or what mm-hmm. you know it's 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 like a very very complex space in that sense i when you create your works do you worry about obsolescence do you worry about the fact that it 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 will not be there one day uh no i don't worry about it um i think i think you, you must kind of accept the fact that it's not going to be even the way it is now even that is a certain kind of uh, i mean that 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 can you know uh, it it will have its own life you know in some ways that it kind of uh, will die one day yeah But, or 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 that that kind of uh, is also kind of uh to allow for a others uh, a space for other things to emerge uh that in your own work that you know once you have made one work or a show that is also a way of kind of moving forward into another oh. there's a way in which you allow it to change yeah i mean it's not in your control in that sense that once you're out there uh, once the object is out there it doesn't feel like you believe that you own your work no sudarshan and in some ways of course you do um, but there is also a certain kind of dispassion to yeah again the ownership is is a very com- complex issue where does it come from you know like for me to you know uh, to even claim of, ownership yeah, to begin with sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's as our house 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 your world different obviously all of these things are there's no angle of ownership there right with with all these chants and hymns and things of that sort well people never thought of uh, owning them because it it always belonged to a community and then we we were part of a part of a narrative maybe you asked earlier asked the question what is a heritage a heritage is not an idea it is a narrative mm-hmm. a narrative which people construct for themselves this is our heritage means you are constructing a narrative mm. and when you are constructing a narrative you also put objects into it when you put objects into it there is that is where the intangible and the tangible meet through a narrative moment the narrative moment always exists in the museum space as mm. well when you bring an object into the exhibitory space you are bringing an object of the real world into an interpretative framework the exhibitory space is an interpretative framework that interpretation has to rely on some narrative mm. that narrative usually is the narrative of the heritage and how it can be a democratic narrative is the question that moves the museums and moves the objects moves the way things are created for instance mm-hmm. if you if you are collecting an uh, one one if you if you construct a museum with the objects of only no, the it almost feels like narratives precede collection precede the oh, day yeah, oh, yeah. they do they yeah. do most yeah. of the time yes most of the time if you if you collect only the royal objects say of the kings and the queens and then you you suddenly you need to have not not necessarily the crowns and the swords and the and the cannons and you need to also have a kitchen utensils Right. you need to have brooms what are, what what were they mm. sweeping the brooms with so what are you doing is you are really constructing uh, democratizing the interpretative mm. space and when you are democratizing the interpretative space then the idea of uh, tangible and the intangible meet 
Mm. And when you enter into the museum space, um, let us say the museum is museum space is also a space of memory. Memory. When you enter into it, it has to make sense to the man who is mm-hmm. going inside. It has to make sense to the viewer, and the viewer needs to participate in it and identify himself or herself with it. That identification process is also a process of history. Mm. So uh, the entire movement is always from comes from how the narrative can be extended. the idea of a narrative mm-hmm. being the heritage how it can be extended then you no, not automatically comes to what what is folklore in the sense that is an everyday object what is an everyday currency how people use it how see how people construct their identities all these come into question question and you need to accommodate them into an interpretative space and in in terms of the artists i think most of the artists also have this this motivation um there are many many motivations for an artist to produce art one of the mo- motivations is i would say is to be in touch with immortality oh you would agree sudarshan well the sound sounds uh, okay yeah, I, i still i think i'm still to get there <laughs> 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 well in most of the cases why would you if you ask a folk artist why would you why would you sing or why would you dance and then he would say that i want to be remembered forever and that is why that i do this although there is no recording mm. facility mm. although the communities do not do not have a recording fa- facility in terms of material recording it is not transferability to the uh, writing or a, or a museumizing um, a tape recording or videographing all these may not be there even in a oral context the artist would say i do that because i want to be but that's like surviving as a dead object that's probably such a no. thing as surviving as a living kind no, of no living it's a it's a living through the generations yeah mm. Mm. it's not surviving as a as a as a dead object but that's surviving through a generations through your genes and through your memory conditioning shaping your world view shaping the way people think how does a proverb work yeah a yeah. proverb is used in an everyday everyday context yeah everyday context when you when you really really encounter a situation you remember a proverb and then immediately it throws certain insight into the grasping that situation the same way the epics work the epic situations that you remember how karna encountered how karna made his decisions made his personal decisions in relation to the gurukshetra war that affects the way you will make an ethical decision in everyday life why why have the epics survived mutu the epics because of so many other things apart from the oral composition techniques they also had the transferability mm-hmm. they were written down in the palmy manuscripts they were written and then read from the manuscripts two small communities then they were uh, there is a recitation no the recitation of mahabharata recitation of ramayana all over the country so uh, we are talking about the twin epics which are national epics because of then we immediately say as kavita was talking about the nationalism playing a role right. in in projecting something also a national treasure and then so nation states came into being they were also becoming very important epic is a form 
form that has very close relation to any nationalistic mm. tendencies so each and every literary form form and artistic forms too they are not a distraction from history but a, but they are literary forms and the artist, artistic forms are are a mode modes to access history why is epics epics came into being when there was a crisis in the national state nationalism you see the great epics were ramayana being retold in different parts of the country for instance kamban wrote the ramayana when the chola empire was being established right the chola empire required an epic right and so a form and is a, is a way of a mode to access a historical point it is very obvious and very very open in terms of epics but with reference to other art forms they are very complicated how do you really access history and the historical moments through the literary form they are very complicated especially when when it comes to the smaller forms smaller forms like not not epics but then poems how do some poems survive even after 2000 years in terms of the tamil tamil sangam poetry survived through rediscovery they were written down on palm leaf manuscripts they were rediscovered once they rediscovered they fueled the entire tamil nationalism what do you think of these uh, literary forms kavita because they're different from things and objects no they they, they are different they, and they, i they want s- to just ask vutu a couple of questions to trouble him a little bit huh? yeah you should you should trouble so, him more <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that came to my mind when you said that these let's say these sanskrit chants don't belong to any person they are not things because they belong to communities and they are kept alive by the actual practices of these communities of learning and transmitting learning but we also hear about the manusmriti saying that if a lower caste person or a woman were to hear these chants lead should be poured in their ears right so that is also a marking of possession that only i or this particular caste has the right to hear these divine sounds and then when you were talking about kamban ramayana and its relation to the establishment of the chola empire and generally when we think about the epics having resonance at moments which are like critical moments in the development of certain polities you also remember that these these two national epics that we call it are all about rulers they're all about kshatriyas and they are performing an ideological function actually valorizing the valorizing the ruler and promoting obedience in the people right yeah. so it's hard to see them at root as very democratic uh, entities they are like top down so then one starts thinking of them as propaganda Maybe so they not belong to down, the no? people. Kavita, I'm they? asking. Yeah. I'm sure he will yeah. have something to say back because people also take ownership and alter and embroider these things. But how about if we also looked, you know, less in a less utopian way at the same texts? Yeah. The first first question is with reference to the manusmriti mm. imposing mm. certain mm. rules and regulations mm. and ownership. But who reads manusmriti? Mm. over a point of time there's a manusmriti is a, is a, is a confined to the academic world most of it but not the vedic chanting if you if you really see that there is a if you see how there there's a if you if you ask why people people uh, people who do not belong to the brahmin community also do the chanting mm. 
why do they do it but why do they do that as a in their household practices mm. puja the natmata puja and other things meditative practices there are numerous instances all over the country where people who do not belong to the claimed ownership of the of the vedas actually also practice, practice it. actually mm. practice it mm. through various means for instance people i have come across in my field work when i was doing the oral formulae of the vedic chanting i wanted to see how people uh, in tamil nadu practice it there are communities who do not even know sanskrit mm. what they do is that they write down the script in tamil mm. right and memorize it mm. and then do the they practice reproduce the sound reproduce mm. the sound because they believe that it has a certain magical right uh, value well, that means if you ask them do they know anything about the manuspriti they are completely unaware of what are the notions of it so they have a way of oral compositions so not necessarily the example that we are discussing mm. vedic chanting there are oral compositions of different kinds they all survive by by see by many of these except for that fact that uh, ramayana and mahabharata the, there are thousands in rajasthan we are talking about something like 3000 oral mm. epics and then in assam another 3000 in tamil nadu 538 sure. so in the entire subcontinent if you really look at the number of oral epics that are being being composed and remembered it is a huge number that we are talking and if you look at why these have survived well, I mean, see, these... there are three or four four uh, reasons for that one would be they also talk about the community history mm. sure it also about the origins of the community why they came into existence who was the so first so there's something to do with identity and self perception uh, identity and, so and the on. self yeah. and the communal practices yeah. and other things the second reason is that they always talked about the disasters and the wars mm. what is the biggest flood mm. flood myth will be there mm. which is the biggest fire then there will be another oral composition so about the disasters that the people wanted to remember yeah. the wars also they wanted to remember yeah so so that that we also know what so there's was a social the, purpose in a way in a way we understand why yeah. why what is the uh, human predicament in terms of uh, disasters in terms of the war so we need to remember that so that we don't commit the mistakes again that that is very much a part of the most of the oral compositions that you see yeah Yeah. So yeah. you will see a number of things. And another thing about that being uh, rulers and other things mm. what where is the democratization process? If you look at the Mahabharata uh being performed in the northern mm. northern districts of Tamil Nadu as a specific example, you will not see that Mahabharata is only a mode. What people are talking about is their own local history. Mhm. their own local localization mm. of their history and then there has been a lot of works that have proved I'll filter by itself to start with mm. uh, but including myself I would include my, a large number of scholars that who have worked on the mahabharata tradition of northern districts of tamil nadu would tell you that we are not they are not doing mahabharata per se it is a narrative the skeleton of a narrative they have taken to enact their history their own mm. aspirations mm. their desires and then of course they the characters are there the narrative is there but then this localization of the histories is also like mm. what happens in the museum at mm. democrat it is becoming it it is becoming a private or a some kind of a collection driven by an eccentric passion slowly becoming a 
transforming into a democratic mm. thing which is owned by everybody the similar things are happening to the oral tradition as well mm. how do you inherit your um, in, i mean so for example here's a case of like mahabharat which is at least let's say at some level it is one epic and then you know parts of it are mm. inherited and some structures taken or not taken is there anything remotely equivalent to because obviously you don't start on a blank slate right there's something that you inherit hmm. from the past now it's 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 well, influenced it's almost like kinds, a objects. conscious kind of uh, move um like maybe a decade ago that i started that you know like there was there was a prerequisite that you must kind of uh, kind of represent where you come from in some ways mm. in the international art world mm. Mm. and that kind of allowed me to look back at you know where do i come from and you know and why did and when you say my, where do i come from what do you mean you, why did, you mentioned yeah, this a while ago try, yeah. what does it mean to uh, yeah so i mean there was a time when why is that know, a non trivial question where do i come yeah. from so i'm going back to you know why i like decided to become an artist was because i could you know draw and paint well better than you know other, uh, my uh, sure. other kids in the school sure and at a time i was you know painting you know dead people uh, like you know dead relatives of people uh, and i still found one one of those pictures what do you mean hung- painting dead relatives of people yeah so you know like uh, they would have a small portrait or a Oh, so right. they would get it painted in oil and you know like I sure. st- yeah i started making money much before a lot of other artists did <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so i just found uh, one of those portraits hanging in one of you know like in my old locality still i was trying to buy it back from them uh, so uh, yeah so there was a time when i started going to the art school and i was like so influenced by you know the early 60s and the 50s uh, Uh, 50s and the 60s uh, in the american art and i was making all these imitative pictures uh, and my parents thought you know like i was like completely going crazy you know and they were very worried because i could paint amitabh bachchan portrait very well before i went to an art school right uh, so coming out of the art school you know there is like something that i had to be you know like i mean i was uh, constantly thinking about this whole kind of uh, gap so, between what happens in within a museum or a gallery space uh, and outside of it you know especially in india that uh, there was this glass door in one of the galleries uh which was uh, in the fountain area and there would always be like a lot of people selling things outside mm. but they would never enter the gallery and there would always be kind of some kind of crowd in front of this glass door you know looking in uh and they would never open this door or kind of enter the gallery so these these things you know started kind of uh, triggered off something you know what does it mean you know how do i connect how do i bring in the outside inside and you know vice versa uh, was something that i was uh, so i started looking at uh, much after my father died who was a yakshagana artist uh, i started collecting his recordings and uh, as a way of kind of finding some aesthetic strategies that i could i could bring into you know this space that i operate within uh, so i don't know how far i've been successful and that you know it kind of started from there uh, that is it possible to kind of uh, say a aesthetic strategy that is employed say in a doha which is written in 12th century for example or uttered in 12th century uh, can those strategies be employed within 
what I can you know do and you know and that is a lot the, more than space. translation no that's that's more than saying how do i represent this doha you don't i mean it's, it's not that yeah it it is influenced by it in some way and yes it's like trying to find because i think else. you know there is something which i will never be able to explain is that there is something uh, in the day to day way we kind of you know negotiate with the world has resonance in you know these things that i find some connection you know between like you know very easily we say what's oh, a karma how i do and it explains a lot of things you know right. without kind of being specific about something or it can also mean very very specific about a certain situation uh, so how do we kind of you know bring all those uh, things into my practice is a question that i'm kind of grappling with uh, even now So, for example, if you have this Doha from 12th century or 15th yeah. century or whatever, and you said aesthetic strategy, it's, yeah. it's, it's what do you do? Like, how do you? For example, you know, one of the works that I did recently, uh, a couple of years ago, is uh, based upon a uh, poem by, by Goraknath. Uh, it says, "Shunyagad shahar, shahar ghar basti, kon sota kon jage hai." And then the second line goes. Uh, I uh, know. I mean, the first line is Shunyagad Shahar, Shahar Ghar Basti, and the second line is Kwanzota. And very often than not, if you look at uh, the Doha, uh, the first line very often uh, comes up with a set of images, hmm. and the second line comes with an entirely diverse set of images, which may not have. I mean, if you separate them, it may not mean anything, you know. Hmm. Uh, uh, but in it being them being together, it kind of opens up for a huge. cosmetic space so to say that it kind of eminently interpretative that you can take away from it the way you may have experienced the world in some ways that if you were to say shunyagar everything is empty you know empty is this house empty is this city empty is this uh, uh home uh and then the second line says who's asleep and who's, who's awake? awake so if everything is empty you know where's the question of anyone being asleep or awake So I think these kind of ideas uh, are like very very fascinating, and it kind of is achieved through a very very kind of strict notions of how you construct uh, certain way of experiencing that poetry in this case. Uh, so what so do they do? What do you do after? Because you could have read the Doha, yeah, and like written it out on a wall. You didn't do that, right? I think one of the things that. Uh, appears uh, very very obvious in these things that there is a sense of you know kind of enclosing these opposites within the same space of experience as if they are not uh, different things uh, for example there is this uh, famous line by kabir which i keep uh, uh, it's a one liner which says lagan bina jagena nirmohi uh, loosely translated it says uh, if you do not have an intense devotion to something you won't have detachment yeah you will not find the detached within yourself right so there is devotion and detachment in the same line as if they are not two separate things so this is something which is i think very very natural for us uh, in terms of how we look at the world so then and as a then, visual artist there's a way in which you would try to put opposites together in 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 some way yeah, i do not want to see them as opposites yeah <laughs> yeah exactly sure hmm. yeah You use the word interpretation. What is that interpretative space? Muthu spoke about it, and presumably, when you get an object, uh, your colleague somewhere, 
what does one need to interpret the past i mean you, you know we have said things loosely like you know there's a narrative that precedes finding an object or getting something um is are, are there things are there relics both material and any material that are almost impossible to interpret to understand what what they might mean today do you know what i mean mhm but, but are there wouldn't be you, even considered a relic or something worth even puzzling about if you didn't already have a ready uh, interpretive framework yeah i mean right? something to when you were asking some seed of curiosity to begin with not so. just curiosity i think but some sense of its significance which might be entirely mistaken mm but without that you don't pick up the thing and even attend to it and look at it for more than 30 seconds Why yeah the very fact that? that you attend to something means that uh, so is... when you were asking whether actually narration precedes collection yes of course it does because you set out to collect something that you know is worth collecting and then in that process you might encounter a whole range of other things that, that you just you, look past that you that you just look past or, or you that, may uh find thing that you didn't expect to find and you may decide to gather them and to try and understand them and to find whatever tools you can that help to shed some light on them so that an interpretation can be developed in the future but uh really unless there is a present need that those objects are serving because they fit into some sort of framework some set of questions for which they appear to be answers you really don't attend to uh, things very much you know there's a very pithy definition for what heritage is that a heritage theorist gives and she says heritage is the uses that the present has for the past yeah that's 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 so, so apt no so unless you have some use for it yeah why would you attend to it at all yeah but equally i mean mm-hmm. th- that's that's just so apt um Obviously it's not like the past has arranged itself beautifully for us to encounter it in a sequence or in a manner that it that it fits a structure surely we do no, a good job no. of um so we do a great deal of editing so let's say something that could have been seen as heritage was rejected as heritage and perhaps now there are some glimmerings of having it back as heritage so let's think of the custom of sati hmm it's something that belongs in the past in the past it was certainly sanctified it was valorized there were rituals there were temples and sculptures built in honor of the people who had committed sati we decided very uh, vociferously to entirely reject that we refused to let that part of the past be the heritage for modern india today right in the aftermath of things like padmavat or even that poor girl in uh that uh, district in Rajasthan who we think was forced to commit sati sometime in the 1980s right. we're not quite sure whether everybody is uh, equally convinced of their rejection right of sati or whether there are some people who want it to be their heritage you know so there is this custom from the past and for some it is vociferously rejected we will not accept that as our heritage and for some it is actually uh, something that is worthy of being considered heritage or being turned into heritage again yeah yes mato and there are other dimensions to it mm-hmm. as well as sudarshan spoke about his need to 
find himself as belonging to this mm, place he needs yes. to go to the ekshagana and the texts of kabir and yes. other texts but so here what is really happening in the when we are looking at uh, the past or immediate past or something with the lens of the present mm. let us examine it further what is happening is to so say a nataraja statue which is all the time uh, depicted as art mm-hmm. uh, you keep it on the, on, the, on your table top you keep it on the uh, airport and then it is and also in the museum but they, they are not they are icons of devotion mm. but icons of devotion so now we are looking at as an art piece of art so mm. what is really happening is we are looking at it with the present eye of looking the past into a totally a different different uh, parameters parameters and then we are looking at it not necessarily as an icon of devotion we are looking at it from the, from so the is your point mutu that at a certain point in time however many centuries ago the idol of the nataraja was not art yeah, yeah it was purely for devotion you won't keep it on your ta- you won't have a tabletop nataraja for instance hmm. which you might use it just as a, as a table weight you see the point that in the exhibitory space then it is it is not worshiped it is not a, it is a looked at as a as an artistic piece and so you, so when you when you do you do you bemoan something like that or you just think of that as a new use no 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 i don't bemoan I, i'm of, only saying uh, adding to kavita's point that certain things are rejected as heritage certain things are taken mm-hmm. into because of the we are using the lens of the present yeah, to look at when they taken that, into a contemporary formulation of heritage they are reframed right reframed they there are, are reframed. And then there are several other reframes are also mm-hmm. taking place mm-hmm. one is looking at most of the things which are which belong to another another realm like devotion religion or you you need to worship then when we are looking at it as an art we are bringing in a totally different parameters to look mm. at it can i say something yes. to that so one thing is when we look back on a chola bronze and we say okay it's authentic meaning lay in the fact that it was produced as an icon which received worship perhaps we are also simplifying uh, all the different possible kinds of meanings it might have had in the mm. past as well uh for the makers of the sculpture perhaps there's a whole wealth of technological achievements that go into making the cast you know getting the alloy right also which we are subsuming we're just taking it to be part of the process by which this form is created but once the form is created the only meaning even historically is the meaning of its consecration in a temple and its subsequent right. worship right but there are many 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 layers of significance for different historical actors as well yeah. the same sculpture in the 12th century could even have been an object of loot which is taken away from one kingdom to another kingdom and then displayed as a mark of shame for the subjugation let's mm. say of the person who has been uh, defeated and that also becomes a historic meaning it's mm. not those are different symbolic meanings they're right? different Depending symbolic deployed so yeah. even our historic meanings of objects are actually were not stable in history and i would submit that the uh, reframing as art is yet another recontextualization appropriate to a certain circumstance and framework mm. and though we say that a lot of objects from the past which have been desacralized and turned into art and put in the secular f- 
phase or framework have lost something they have also gained something right. and a lot of the gain is exactly what you were celebrating a little while ago muthu because it's also a gain in terms of democratization mm-hmm. right it's a uh, shavite thing that belongs to a certain you know subsect within tamil nadu here i am a sikh punjabi from north india from the 21st century it belongs to me i imagine as much as it belongs to you or to you or to you with all of our different uh, right. formations because now it has been secularized into a national heritage and we are all able to yeah. uh, partake of it right so there is also a gain as well as a loss yeah the gains are also many many dimensional mm. i would say like mm. sudarshan was saying about the kabir's couplet mm. uh, bringing him an insight into how to bring together two opposite elements as mm. into one frame and look at them as existing on the same plane without being opposite so losing the opposites you know does the we, does you, the does the present need the past always I mean so you know while I think your definition of heritage is beautiful but is it is it a necessity So I think that in India or in South Asia because as as Sudarshan has struggled with his mm. in his journey and you know I I find this so intriguing that he has had to think of this question of where do I come from which I mm. it's very simply put but it's kind of crazy at least to yeah. me and it's because you know I mean he knows how to paint yeah. he could do pretty cool portraits of dead and alive people <laughs> right. but it's somehow except for the fact that there's something exceptional here there is he had to go back to the past some somewhere to his own past somebody else's past I think in South Asia we are obsessed with the past. And I think the question is that do humans need, need the past? past? Need the past. And and you know you you spoke of Milman Perry a while ago and you know obviously scripts have come somewhere along the way but we've been oral people for many 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 centuries before we became what we are and obviously there are all kinds of icons and you've been making all kinds of things. Do we need the past? What we, we are all there? sculpted in time. Let's say um, mm. it is not necessarily past. We we also need a future. We also mm. need the present. Mm. So it is not. It is not saying right. that we. It, when you when you frame the question as well, do we need the past? It looks as if. as something that is dead and then whether we are resurrecting something from the dead need not necessarily be it, it is time is a continuous flow and the past could be living in the present I, no? that's mm. right so yeah. it will be also in the in the future that is why it is we are all sculpted in time and then that that we are always trying to grapple with in a way that grappling with is a, is a continuous process that is what we mean by living living yeah. and then uh, that living always requires an inquiry into into who we are what we are in this world it is not necessarily uh, an identity of uh, being belonging to a community a region or a place or a nation even and what what is this grappling with is this grappling with our mortality or grappling with i mean is it more or less only utilitarian since Sen- sensibility i would say we are trying to grapple with why we how i article why i think something as profoundly influencing on me me why is this uh, 
uh, Sudeshan was talking about walking on ice by Vezel, mm-hmm. Werner Herzog, that why is that it is, uh, it is immediately still troubling me? Uh, why it would continue to haunt me? Because I, I'm, I'm thinking, how mm-hmm. could I have forgotten that book? Because, uh, because I thought it was uh, such an important book. Are we book. worried about forgetting as, as, <laughs> as, 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 as humans? Oh, Absolutely, so yeah. yeah. That's one one of the conditions that, especially in the old age like mine right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, there's a need to it kind of like hold on. There's a human need to hold on to things, and uh, and extend much past your biological life. You know, in some ways, and that that need, I think, it's played out in like you know, uh, our everyday negotiations in some ways. with the world do you feel like you need the past not just your own past but you know past of again let's not, not human history with capital h and capital h but of no, course we're in the world really so need we need it but i think it's present it's all the time there hmm. um, it's uh, i mean it plays out in like in everything that you do in some ways no i think and the question is and so dashan this is a question to you it's a personal question of sorts you know, address it or respond to it the way you think is appropriate you could have been a portrait artist just you know painting mm-hmm. the world making sculpt just 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 representing the world um something inside you made you take another route like go in a different direction um if i wanted to make portrait i mean that would have been a way of representing the world as well mm-hmm. uh but it's just uh, like chance encounters that kind of makes you move in different ways you know i would have been very happy to be a portrait painter if that's what uh i could do uh i think there's no distinction in that sense yeah. whether i mean i think there could be a painter who paints portrait and equally kind of uh um as as you know like uh, his work would be as valid as anyone else's in that yeah. sense yeah yeah i no absolutely i don't think it's validity yeah. that we're talking yeah. of here i think we're talking of whether one needs the past and as if, as one wears the art history lens um kavita i mean are there is there is there as you look at art at different snapshots of time i mean clearly it's not like art of today is only art of today right i mean there's always reflection rumination handling of the past and so on has that changed anyway it's too big a question i get it it's it's also probably too vague but i actually okay. want to try and respond to some of the things yes, that you please. know you were already asking sudarshan and muthu about it about why we need the past or do we need the past and maybe uh, we should rephrase the question i'm not sure quite how but the thing is what is it that allows us to be something more than our animal selves hmm. just survival just feeding ourselves just managing to stay alive what is it that makes us something larger than that and we have to have a mental world you know a spiritual world which is connected to beings that are beyond just ourselves right and they can be from the past and they can be a dispersed uh, field in the present they as well they could be well. dead or alive they, they could, could be, be dead or alive real or imaginary 
they could be real or imaginary but unless we have that larger psychic dimension within us where we feel connected to others and that we are living our lives in a condition of being connected to others and therefore being in that relationship which is the basis of all sort of ethical thinking right mm. if i am atomistic there's no need for ethics in any of my behavior and so i think the past as well as whatever present we have that we are surrounded with and whatever future we imagine hmm, is fundamentally important for us to ethical actually, for our ethical yeah, to, selves yeah to have an yeah. ethical self to have a reason to have an ethical self you know the person who said the last word i think or maybe the first word and therefore the last word on this posterity issue is actually groucho marx right yeah. because he <laughs> said why should i care about posterity what has posterity ever done for me right <laughs> <laughs> when, when he says that that puts it absolutely clearly Absol- the absurdity of the statement everything i have i owe to myself <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but, but this actually puts at the center you know that you cannot take a position like that actually and that actually brings the whole idea of ethics ethical behavior responsible behavior coming through our relationships real or imagined yeah. with those who have gone before those who currently go inhabit the world with us and those who are to come or we hope will come because the world will still be there for them to come to but uh, yeah th- it's profoundly important for that reason yeah probably one of the reasons why sudarshan feels a little awkward saying that even this is my thing no hmm so about art i think one of the uh, fascinating things about art through the long sweep of history of art is that when we uh, look at you know something that is made today in india we look at something that was made in the 16th century in italy we look at something that was made in 2000 bc in uh, egypt there is something about the continuous presence of certain human characteristics that we feel we can recognize or certain forms of observation you know a flower or a butterfly that we feel we can recognize where we sense that my goodness these people also responded to beauty in the same way that i do now maybe they did maybe they didn't but there certainly is a sense of affinity that you mm, feel right. with human kind through a very long period of history which also i think is fundamentally important in creating ideas of ourselves as being beyond individuals no the idea of human kind i think is informed by the fact that we are able to listen to the greek poets and feel that there are emotions being expressed there that we can understand you know to look at a a portrait from the 1st century and to see haunting eyes and imagine an expression that you wear on your face i think the and you know i think the interesting thing kavita is that in some ways the remnants of history whatever they mm. might be are always piecemeal right i mean because yeah. it's it's past after all yeah. um so how does one know that one is piecing them right together no. Oh, oh, very difficult to say. No, one doesn't know. One pieces them as one feels right, right, and that again is back to the definition of heritage. Heritage, yeah. So you always look of, at the past from yes, the lens of the present. From the lens of the present. So in ways that seem to answer to our needs at various times, we look back on the past. There's no dearth of examples I can tell you from a fascist past, which was 
equally invested or more invested in the use of art and art history and museums and artists and monuments and splendid architecture as i could tell you of a democratic yeah history yeah right so yeah. i don't think that what remains to us from the past is inherently in and of itself fated to lead us to greater humanity it can also lead us to greater bias and prejudice but that really depends on the ground on which we are standing as we look back at the past what's the future what's the future of this notion and we'll end with this yeah, there are there are three kind three things that i can tell one is a one is a moving from the particular to the universal as we are talking about 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 what is my own regional aesthetics and the aesthetic strategies that you spoke about to slowly moving to as including Werner Herzog Greek poetry and all that that is a, that is we strive and, and you see that as the long arc I, the, it's it's a quite a travel the travel is from the particular we place ourselves in the particular and then slowly move towards the universal universal that is one way of looking at it the other way of looking at it is again coming back to Werner Herzog's uh, and also an example of walking on the ice why is it so important is what is the ethics in that is it is the postponement of others death mm. it is not see the postponement of of death is a very important artistic act i would say shira said for instance the the storyteller of the arabian nights mm. the storyteller of the arabian nights tell the stories to postpone her own her death, own death yes. <laughs> every night because so if you ask me why are you a fiction writer why are you a storyteller to me then i would also say that my other name is shira said mm. i want to postpone my death that is why i tell you a story Mm. but then what is a greater ethical position it is not postponing my death but like when i said postponing somebody else's the others death mm. the postponement of the others death is the more important it has more important ethical value that means that is something that i should have remembered all the time <laughs> so it is not i, I can, how could i afford to forget it so and that uh, what is forgotten and then what is remembered is important that we pa- need to pass on when we pass on heritage we also pass on like this uh, fascist regimes producing art and architecture at that also we tell them that uh, this is how it produced art and architecture so that also need to be remembered yeah mm. remember yes. in yeah. if at all we need to postpone not only ours de- our death, is death but the community's death others death a nation's death or the universal value of any other human being's death what's the future sudarshan i know you're shy of making metaphysical grand pronouncements <laughs> what's the future what's mm. the future of the past in a way no what's the future of uh, i think yeah i think it's what no will be remembered what's forgotten yeah i mean i think one of the things just to kind of add to what kavita beautifully put is there's no way to uh, look forward without having to look back hmm. and unfortunately there's no way to remember without also agreeing to forget right yes and that is one's fear because you can only remember so much so as more and more facts and artifacts and information and people press in on us 
we have to make active acts of forgetting something so is that a, we can is there a bit of a trade off between yeah yeah because yeah, in the long a, run there's a lot of the past no there's a lot of the past around us but at some stage the present starts feeling that to preserve the past at the expense of the present hmm. no longer remains viable it's not at the expense of the future because this whole thing of posterity is why are we preserving the taj mahal we are preserving it for posterity right but if at some point the population pressure in agra becomes so huge that for the present it seems unviable that why shouldn't i be able to build a house in that garden which is just dead space or empty space you know that pressure of the present which starts resenting the past can actually curtail what might remain or might not remain for the future interesting that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank you thank you for thank coming thank you very much thank, thank you, you.